Please join me in the prayer for illumination. Let us pray. Holy God, author of all we have, to whom belongs both the first word and the last, open us to your spirit that as scripture is spoken and your word proclaimed, we may be comforted, convinced, and changed to give greater glory to Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray, amen. Today's scripture is from the 22nd chapter of Proverbs, the sixth verse. Train children in the right way, and when old, they will not stray. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. So today is our last uh, week in our uh, Stewardship Sermon series. It's our Commitment Sunday. Um, as we begin uh, wrapping up, last week uh, I talked about the vision uh, that the church is adopting. That'd be a great question to answer. Why have a vision? Uh, why head in that direction? Uh, in the past, I've served churches that were wonderful churches, but they were what I would describe as turnip churches. Now, uh, to be honest, y'all are quite the tomato church. I love it when you bring tomatoes by when your garden has overproduced, but I'm not necessarily talking about uh, turnips in terms of produce. Uh, for some churches, uh, if someone shows up on Sunday morning, it's a victory. They may have a, a sanctuary that has 200 seats, but if 20 show up, we're going to say it's a success because people turned up. I think you have a vision because God intends more than just for a few people to show up for an hour and to say nice words on a Sunday morning. But instead, we should have a vision beyond ourselves, uh, out into the future, out into the community. Uh, let me do a little bit of history for you to tell you why I think a vision is so important right now. Uh, in 1955, the church was on an incoming tide. Uh, um, no matter what denomination, if you were Christian in America, there was a rising tide and it was raising all boats. Uh, it was after the Second World War. Uh, the economy was uh, unmatched. The middle class was getting larger. Uh, we were getting richer and the church was popular. In most towns, the church became that center of the community. On Main Street, you'd have City Hall, the courthouse, and the church house. From 1950 to 1965, uh, there was a massive movement of people into churches. Uh, we built stronger institutions. During that time, uh, many of the United Methodist theological schools were either added onto or expanded uh, or created at that time. Membership went up. Uh, every annual conference uh, had an increase in growth. Every uh, Methodist conference and Episcopal diocese built a headquarters because bricks and sticks were how you changed people's lives. Most uh, conferences added staff, and all of those things had to be paid for by local churches. But about the time 1965 comes along, the mainline churches begin to experience a decline. And 25 years later, the evangelical churches would experience the same decline. And so since 1966, we've been fighting a losing battle, trying to figure out how to turn around the graph that you've been seeing uh, paraded before you. Uh, the tide had gone out and we were unsure exactly how to make it reverse 
or how to pay for all the things we'd built during the high tide. If you look at that last slide, you can see that the decrease, the angle of the trend is so dramatic that it will only take a few more decades before the churches in the United States will become uh, irrelevant, uh, if not dead. I really do believe that this is a time and a place for us to not be turn up churches, but rather to be a church with a vision, a vision supplied by God, uh, a task for us to do, a next step to adventure on. I, um, I recognize that I grew up in a large church. Uh, the Willens United Methodist Church is one of the top 10 United Methodist churches uh, in the United States. Uh, we referred to it as a um, mega church. I had 150 kids in my youth program. It was sixth grade to 12th grade. Uh, we didn't just go uh, to the coast for a mission trip. We went to Waikiki for a mission trip. That's some mission that I could get behind, right? I know there are ethical implications in even saying that out loud, uh, but um, everything that we did was bigger than big, exciting and attractive. It is sad to say uh, that when I think back over those 150 kids, not many of them have landed in churches. Not many of them have mature and vital faith. I refer to them as the MIAs, the miss missing in actions. My own very best friend that I grew up with in the Woodlands, uh, he was Roman Catholic. He went to the Catholic Church in the Woodlands, uh, St. Simon's and Jude. Um, it was great. He went every Sunday. He was, we would have discussions about God in between our watching of the Star Wars trilogy uh, late at night. Um, he uh, was quite the well-formed Christian. I remember celebrating with him when he had first communion. I remember that he couldn't come over if it was CCE. I, I remember him being the kind of kid growing up in a Catholic church where things meant something to him. We lost touch over uh, college and after seminary when I got ordained, I got a phone call from him. He said, Peter, I'm living in Kentucky and I'm about to get married and I'd love for you to come and officiate at the wedding. I said, great, what church will it be held at? And he says, well, we're not really gonna have it in a church. And I said, great, well, what is the faith commitment of your fiance? And he says, well, she really doesn't have a faith commitment. You see, we've rented out the theater in the round at the local junior college, um, and um, she's the drama professor, and uh, all the drama kids are gonna come and they're gonna wear costumes. It's gonna be like a masquerade party. Uh, and we want you to officiate. It's going to be on Halloween night. Hey, hey Peter, what costume are you going to wear? Needless to say, in the midst of this Twilight Zone experience, the things that were important to me were no longer important to him. Uh, I still keep relationship with him. Uh, we still talk about how Jar Jar, Biggs, Jar Jar Binks was the worst thing that George Lucas ever did. But I still remember back to that wedding and the surreal atmosphere that was there, and the realization that something that was holy to me had become a little bit of a caricature to him. I wonder who's gone missing in your life. Who used to sit on the pew next to you but doesn't come anymore? Maybe it's a husband, maybe it's an adult child. Do you remember the last argument that you had when the most recent uh, uh, grandchild was born and you suggested that the child get baptized? You know, there's that old maxim that you can be happy or you can be right. And some arguments aren't worth having 
over and over again. Who's missing in your life? Who did you grow up with in the faith, but for some reason they find more important things to do on Sunday morning, like brunch or soccer games or sports? Where are they? They are missing in action. For some reason, what is so important to us has become a caricature to them. When we look at the graphs, um, it is our, our family members, these missing in action folks, um, are not statistical anomalies, but rather they are the trend currently. Uh, in fact, just in the last five years, um, the unaffiliated, the nuns, the people who are not uh, anti-religion, they just don't have enough reason to make an important part of their life. Uh, they have gone from just over 15% to just under 20%. In fact, the trend line of that graph says that in the next 10 years, they will reverse the growth that happened during the Third Great Awakening, which happened between 1950 and 1965. And when you look at the fact that uh, some churches go after seeker-oriented Christians, these are not seekers. They're not looking. They're not interested. They're the nuns. For them, religion is nice, but it is background music to what's really important. When we look at scripture, Proverbs says, train up a child in the way he should go and he'll not tarry from it. If you train well, they don't disappear. Well, we've been training our little Heidi's off, haven't we? We've been going to do vacation Bible school and we've been doing Sunday school. Uh, we've been uh, teaching uh, the story of Noah's Ark with flannel boards. That We have been getting serious about training. In fact, we have done so much children's Sunday school that some of you say to me when I go recruiting, thanks but no thanks, preacher. I've served my two tours of duty and it's time for somebody else to do it now. We have used um, veggie tales. We have found uh, hip and new ways to go about training Christians. But the reality is, when we look at the pews, something has happened. We did not train in the way we should train because surely they have wandered away from the training. What if I told you that there was an opportunity for a new regimen? What if I told you that there was a way that we could train in efficient and particular ways that research had showed that there were four basic behaviors that every church should exemplify? And if we invested our time and money in those four things, life could be different in the future. Researchers say that the kind of Christianity that is living and existing uh, in, the United States, in, in the United States is called moralistic therapeutic deism. Now, those are big words, but moralistic would mean that Christianity has been reduced down to a be kind, be nice, be polite. It's like if you were back at your grandparents' house and you were sitting on the plastic-covered sofa. I, I like to call it Rodney King kind of faith, right? Rodney King and the LA riots said, can't we just get along? But you know, Jesus got angry when it was time to be angry, and he got passionate when it was time to be passionate. When he saw them selling things in his father's house, he made a whip of cords and cleared out the room. It wasn't about being polite. It was about being faithful. And therapeutic, therapeutic is a descriptor saying that uh, we'll gladly do religion as long as it makes us feel good, as long as it affirms us. Let's be honest, Joel Osteen has built his whole ministry on a therapeutic Christianity that makes us feel good. In fact, he wants us to feel so good, you can watch it on TV and not even have to get dressed to come down to the church house. 
Therapeutic is this idea that, um, that we should always feel good, that there should be a participation trophy for everything. Heaven forbid should someone feel like a loser. That in the midst of being therapeutic, we miss out on the opportunity of feeling good and feeling bad and feeling right. If I did something wrong growing up, my parents put me in timeout. Do you think I felt good being in timeout? No, I'd made poor choices and there were consequences to my actions. But my parents would have told you, though I felt bad, I was feeling right. Therapeutic Christianity disregards the idea of what we should be feeling and just makes sure that we feel good. Deism, deism is this idea that God created a beautiful world, a world that works together like a machine. Uh, it's almost like the perfect watch that needs no winding and then walked away from it because it works just well how it is. God doesn't have to be involved anymore. Just let the watch run. You see, deism doesn't work because we believe in a God who is in salvation history. We believe a God that uh, would not let us just wallow in our sin, but sent Jesus to die on the cross for us. Uh, many of us have had that experience of praying for a friend or a neighbor or even saying prayers for ourselves in the midst of needing healing. And when the healing comes, God has been active in our lives, not far and removed. Uh, deism has a long history. Uh, the founding fathers were primarily deists as well. Uh, Thomas Jefferson was such an enlightened rationalist that he did not like the idea of um, God doing miracles. Uh, he edited the New Testament and the Gospels, taking out all of the miracles that Jesus did. He did not like the idea of God doing magical parlor tricks. He wanted a different kind of God, an enlightened God. I think the most important thing that we can do is to begin addressing moralistic therapeutic deism by uh, teaching our uh, children not just to be good and polite, to be seen and not heard, but rather to be uh, people of the faith, uh, to share the fruits, uh, to not just live into an affirming Christianity, but to live into a healthy Christianity that helps us feel right, not just good. And in the end, deism, we need a God who is ever present or maybe it's just me. I certainly need a God who is ever present in my life. So what if I told you there was a new regimen, a new training opportunity, a new opportunity to make a difference in children and in our community's life? Turn that one more. There we go. Yeah, got to get the picture in there. A new training regimen, right? What if there were four things established by research that tells you uh, that a kid trained in this church will make it into vital healthy faith in adulthood. Comes down to four simple things. The first one is having the ability to articulate a personal and powerful God story and being willing to do it. The second one is to belong to a community of faith that has high expectations. Notice how uh, folk can come to Christmas Eve, disappear, and come back to Easter. And we're just so excited that they came those two times. Uh, one time I suggested that at Christmas Eve, you should put a big billboard out uh, as they're going out of the church parking lot that has the date for Easter that year. Because, you know, that's the tricky holiday. It moves around on you. What if we had higher expectations of folk? 
What, what if we expected folk to come a little bit more often than Christmas and Easter? The third regimen is uh, that people have a sense of call to live for a larger purpose. What is it like to think of ourselves, not just taking care of ourselves nine to five, not just providing for our own and making sure it doesn't happen in our backyard, but rather being passionate about Christians anywhere, being passionate about the faith everywhere, being concerned about those who are not related to us, who do not live in our own houses, but we will take resurrection-sized risks so that they might know Jesus and have a different life what I think having a larger call and being in a larger purpose is about. The fourth one is uh, that we have, the way it's phrased there is, have a hope for the future promised by their faith. I like to say, be fluent in the faith. Now, I'm told uh, in classical education, the first thing you learn is vocabulary, then you learn grammar, and then you learn rhetoric. Think about it. I have to learn that uh, Jane and the dog are nouns, and that running is a verb, right? And then I put the grammar together. Jane and the dog run. But I can't give you a rhetorical argument about, about why exercise is important for healthy life until I've mastered the two things above it. Friends, I'm afraid that we are uh, a denomination, um, a, a whole uh, a faith group that is not so sure what the vocab, the grammar, and the rhetoric is. We've taught easy things, we've taught convenient things, but we've not taught hard things. We've not thought about scope and sequence. Can I get an amen from my teachers? We teach willy-nilly things because it's fun, but maybe one needs to know the books of the Bible before one starts learning about ethical issues. Maybe we have to learn um, about uh, the quadrilateral before we start asking whether moral issues are right or wrong. It's an interesting world that we live in, but I believe if we were to use this training regimen, and I'm committing myself for the next 12 months to make sure that every program, every opportunity, every moment of this church's life is geared towards developing those four behaviors. And I have to be honest, I'm a little bit selfish. I've got a 10-year-old. I want her to have life-giving faith. I want her to be able to name the story that is powerful in her life that God is responsible for. I want her to be part of a strong Thai community that she knows that she's expected to do more than just show up and warm the bench. I want her to know that her life, no matter what God calls her to do, whether it's um, you know, digging ditches or bookkeeping or chemical engineer, that there's a higher purpose, a bigger issue for her life than just earning an income. I want her to be fluent in the faith. I want her to know the basics. I want her to know how to make a convincing argument. I want her to know that God wants her to change the world. I believe if we do these things, if we invest for 12 months uh, in developing these behaviors, this alignment, if you will, if you want to talk corporate-wise, uh, in our offerings, that we will be a stronger church and that it will contribute to a three-year goal of raising a generation in faith. Now, you may be saying, preacher, why are, we gonna draw, uh, why are we going to drop three years of our lives into the youth ministry? Well, wait a minute. We are going to do a whole lot of work with the youth program, but every one of us has an encounter with children. 
either as grandkids or parents, uh, grandparents or parents, or, or just if you teach in the school, uh, or if you are out and about in the world and someone knows that you're a Christian, you have a responsibility to live and model uh, life-giving faith. I know we like the, the opportunity to assign mentors in confirmation, but every mentor that I loved was not a mentor that was assigned to me. It was a mentor that I picked out Half of them I told that I was asking them to mentor me. The other half I just watched from afar to see how God blessed their lives. And then I emulated it. You see, you may be a mentor and you have no idea about it. There's a 50-50 chance that some kid is watching you right now. And the kind of faith behavior that you uh, role model is the kind of faith behavior that that youth or kid or young adult thinks is going to be life-giving for them as an adult. We all have a responsibility to raise a generation in faith. We all have that opportunity to make the world a different place, to turn the curve around, to make a difference for the people in our pews. Imagine the arguments that don't have to be had in the future if we trained up children in the way they should go. Imagine that it wouldn't just be high attendance Sundays on Father's Day and Mother's Day when the kids just give in and come but rather they would begin to understand that personal and powerful God story and how it affected your life and how it could affect theirs. I've been challenged by church leaders and I love to be challenged by church leaders. And one church leader says, tell them what you want them to do. So we've talked a lot about taking your next step in your faith journey with Christ. And I've been really ambiguous about what that might mean for you because I've wanted you to find your own way. But I wanna be serious today. I wanna be direct with you today. Our next step as a congregation is to fund the vision. I want you to know that I believe without a doubt that your next step in your faith journey with Christ is to figure out where you are on the giving continuum. If you've never given, I think you should give. I don't wanna know how much, that's between you and God. It could be a dollar, it could be a quarter, it could be a hundred dollars, that's up to you and God. But give something. And if you have given, great, start thinking about giving again. And if you've given multiple times, maybe it's time to start giving on a regular basis. And if you give on a regular basis, I want you to stretch to the point of giving a percentage of your income. And then over the next 10 years, yes, I said 10 years, step up your income 1% a year until you're a tither. It's what Amy and I did. It took us more than 10 years after coming out of seminary to become tithers. I don't know how you feel about your pastor not pulling it off perfectly the first time, but we had student loans. We had a ton of debt. Uh, we had not been smart with our money. In fact, we, were, we had been stupid with zeros, I think is the phrasing. I don't want you to worry about wallowing in the shame and guilt of what you haven't been able to do till today. It's time to be done. I think your next step, the next bite, the next place is to get on that giving continuum. Not because the church needs your money. Let's be honest, God created the world. God has enough money. The good news is that it's all there. The bad news is it's stuck in our pockets. And so the next step is to buy into the vision, to say, yes, yes, I wanna see the world a different place. I'm not happy just to do turn-up ministry. I'm ready to do resurrection-sized risk ministry. 
And so as we transition uh, from the sermon into the hymn, uh, the hymn is a great opportunity uh, for us to prayerfully consider uh, what God is doing in our lives. It's a chance to kind of say, all right, whatever has happened in the past is the past. This is a day of new beginnings. So I want to invite you to stand as we sing together. And uh, as you feel moved, uh, would love for you to come down and drop your commitment card in the basket. We've been working that tree uh, all month long. Uh, we've shared together in the planting. Uh, let's share together in the harvest as together we raise a generation in faith. And saying that the next step in where we're headed is to fund the vision that God's clearly offered to the leadership and invited us to collaborate with him. Uh, if your next step is to join this congregation, we'd love for you to come down today uh, and begin talking about that day for your joining. Um, and if there's, um, uh, there'll be, uh, uh, I think uh, Janet Jackson Ellis will be coming down during the closing hymn, and she'll be one of our Stephen ministers. If you're in need of prayer or would like to arrange care for someone, uh, Stephen ministers will be right down here in blue shirts, uh, ready to take care of you. Um, uh, David Hill, um, is it possible that we could sing one verse of Come Ye Thankful People Come because the preacher went long? Grab a hand next to you for our closing benediction. Almighty God, we give thanks that you've taken a resurrection-sized risk for us. Now send us out into the world to take our next step to care passionately about raising a generation in faith. And as we go, Lord, pull from us that God story, which is both personal and powerful about how you've been involved in our lives so that you also will be involved and others. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.